champ is here. We will definitely not shut up and dribble. The champ is here. I must be the greatest. The champ is here. I'm going to continue to stand with the people. The champ is here. I will, I will not, not lose. lose. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you are here with we. My name is EJ, and I got my man. MH. Yes, he's the DB of the show, and we are Black in Sports, giving a voice to the culture that won't shut up and dribble. Here, interviewing the best professionals in the game and in the boardroom, covering it all, laughing it all, we're providing a platform to be heard. All right, so today's show, you know how we do about this time, and excited to welcome in veteran journalist who's covered the NBA, golf, NFL, a published author, but currently staff writer for the Baltimore Ravens and co-host, excuse me, host of the Black in NFL show. So let's clap it up, clap it up. Hey, happy to have Clifton Brown here, man. Thank you so much, Clifton, man, for, for taking time and sitting down with some, some rooks. So uh, we definitely want to jump right into it. And uh, how we started is ask, um, you know, a shoot your shot question. So this is where you went for it all, bet on yourself, man, and you just – you just gambled and said, you know what, I'm going to try this. It may work and it may not work. But just a story, it could have been high school days, college days, early in your career, or even, you know, in recent days. But give us a shoot your shot moment. Go. Very good question. Uh, kind of the podcast I'm doing, Black and NFL, was kind of a shoot your shot motion. But the first first thing that popped in my mind was when I first started in journalism, my first job was in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. And a newspaper doesn't exist anymore to focus on news. Okay. I'm from Tampa. I'm from Philly, born and raised. Never left Philly, you know, my whole uh, youth. And then my first plane ride was for my job interview down in Florida. Okay. And uh, went for the interview. Uh, when I got back, they offered me the job a couple of days later. And, yeah, again, I was moving a 1,000 miles away. Right. Uh, no, no family, no friends. It was the unknown, but I remember my mom telling me, look, you say you always want to be a sports writer. This is your shot. What are you going to do? And I went, and that, that started the, the road to where I am now. Boy, now that is a shoot-your-shot moment right there. Definitely, definitely. So starting back in Philly, uh, where did your love for sports writing or just sports in general, where did that start? Yeah, I've always loved sports, man, since I can remember. I'm talking like five or six years old. I'm not sure – where that love started, but it's always <laughs> been a part of my life. Uh, Philly, you know, type of place, great athletes on every corner. I'm not the biggest guy in the world. I played stuff, but I always, there was always, I didn't have to walk too far to find somebody who was a better baller than me. <laughs> so I kind of realized that I was never going to be a professional athlete. Um, and so when I got to be junior high, high school, college, how was I going to stay around what I loved. And I kind of had a little knack for writing. You know, again, my mom, my grandma, they were like, hey, you know, you have a knack for writing, you love sports. They kind of put the bug in my ear that like sports writing would be a way to combine the two. And I've never done anything else. I mean, I've been blessed. If I had to do something else outside of sports, I don't know what that would be. And now I'm getting to the age where I'm thinking I may never have to find out. <laughs> that's what's up so did, so did you did you cover like your high school uh back in the day did you you cover them with writing and everything yeah we had a little high school newspaper i went to yay in the child the yay in high school uh outside of philly went there and then you know temple i was on the school newspaper and really those clips back in the day this is prehistoric times now you know no internet no twitter um the written newspaper which unfortunately to me, you know, the newspaper business seems to be dying, but that was the thing when I was, you know, in high school and college to get something published, you know, people got the newspaper delivered on their driveway every day. And yeah, those clips I wrote at the temple news were what attracted the Boca Raton news. I sent my best clips to some papers all around the company, around the country, excuse me. Boca Raton was the first paper to call me and say, Hey, you know, we like your stuff. Would you like to come down for an interview? It was those clips I wrote in college about Temple's basketball team, uh, Temple's football team, Temple's soccer team, whatever, that got the managing editor's attention to the point where he called me down for an interview. And then, yeah, once he offered me the job, I went. Let's go. 
<laughs> so, so Philly guy, um, all Philly sports still. I mean, we know who pays you, so we, we ain't going to take it too far, right? Uh, speaking of that purple hue, so people, folks, if you're watching this, don't adjust your screens. He is really repping right now <laughs> with, 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 the, with the Ravens purple. But um, so Philly uh, sports fan across the board, all the home teams. No question. I mean, when I was growing up, there was no ESPN. We had the game of the week, you know, the NBA game of the week, MLB make game of the week. But most of the when you turn on TV, you saw your home team uh, playing against somebody. Gotcha. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of kills me now. It's like, you know, cats from Chicago, you know, yeah, I go, I'm a Golden State fan. I'm a Knicks fan. It wasn't like that one, bro. You repped your hometown. And, yeah. It is in my blood. I mean, Philly, you know, Sixers, you know, Dr. J. Yeah, you know, that's me. Uh, you know, Philly's Mike Schmidt, you know, that's me. Flyers, Broad Street Bullies. Okay. You know, that's me. Yes, So, yeah, yes. Philly through and through. Again, you know, that's all I knew growing up. And those are the guys, those are the players who sparked my love and my rooting interest for sports. And now do you still have that same love for uh, Ben Simmons with your uh, Sixers? Oh, man, you really went for it, man. Like, you doubled me over, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm still not over that series yeah, at all. Hey, it's, uh, I'm not over it. Okay. So, man, I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't, you know, Ben, I was, a, I was a big Ben guy up until this last playoff series. Now, I don't know. I think it might be better for both parties for them to move on. Well, hey, don't give up on you. You have a, a, another person here on this podcast that's a support of a Ben. So, MH, would you definitely share he shouldn't give up and tell him why he shouldn't give up right now? <laughs> no, I to, to I, I agree with you, Clinton. I think his time might be uh, up in Philadelphia. Uh, but I like Ben Simmons. I like his game. Uh, I think he has a lot of talent. I think there's some mental roadblocks he has to get by. Uh, but I don't think – the 76ers, obviously, I don't think that situation is best to uh, display his skill set, I guess, uh, throughout the course of a season. So Yeah, I mean, we're in the win now, you know, times. What have you done for me lately? But to me, this is a situation where it is up to Ben. I mean, he has not been a good free throw shooter, nor has he had a jump shot his whole NBA career. <laughs> and and people, have wanted, people have wanted him to do that. And like you said, he has so many other skills. You, I don't know. You guys have probably seen. I hadn't seen the interview. Kobe Bryant was interviewed about Ben Simmons a few years ago. Yeah. yeah. That, that to me, if you watch, if you're Ben Simmons and you watch Kobe Bryant talking about how important it is for you to develop a jump shot and how awesome you would be if you had one, if that doesn't move you, then I don't know what will. And now this is the first time in his career where I believe his teammates, maybe not all of them, but some of them are like, Ben, what's up? Yeah. Are you going to be in the gym this summer? Are you going to round <laughs> the game? Because if you aren't, the same thing could happen. Yeah. No, I agree. I think he's still developing. I think he's developed a lot on the defensive end uh, where he's kind of like, I, I want to almost put him in that same category as a, not quite yet, but Scottie Pippen, Kawhi Leonard, where he's like elite of elite when it comes to defender, and he has to round out his offensive game like you were saying. I also think he's playing out of position, but we can get into that yeah, <laughs> later yeah, day. We have a whole Ben Simmons <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we definitely talked about it. So transitioning to, to Temple, how did you choose a school? You know, what was that process like for you? And it's an historic university, so just kind of tell me some stories about Temple. Well, you know, obviously everybody in Philly knows Temple. Um, you know, as all the big five schools. Uh, to me, they're all great schools. Uh, but for my story, actually, I started at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Okay. And loved it. Uh, loved it to the point where I wasn't really studying the way I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, my dad showed up one time at campus. Or actually, one time he showed up at campus, caught me by surprise. I wasn't exactly studying the time he came over. Then when my um, grades came out, he just looked at it. He said, son, you can do this at home. So <laughs> next thing I know, my mom went to Temple. Actually, my mom, she was the first black female to graduate from Temple School of Pharmacy. Wow. And Whoa. so she, yeah, uh, 
she actually also wanted to go to Howard. Uh, her grand, my grandfather, her father didn't want her to go away to school. Shut that down. She went to Temple her first year. Some of the professors she had were trying to flunk her out because she was black. And um, my mom was really miserable there. But by the end of her freshman year, being the type of person she was, she was like, they're so determined to try and get me out of this school. I'm going to graduate from this school. Let's go. So she told her father, you know, I'm, I'm staying put. She graduated and she was the first black woman to graduate from Temple School of Pharmacy. So with that legacy, yeah, and being from Philly and not doing what I was supposed to do at <laughs> Howard, they yanked me out and put me back at Temple. <laughs> so now what was was your first job coming out of Temple straight to the New York Times or was there some was that the when you went down you were down in the Florida and then kind of moved your way up because like yeah, you, uh, yeah. your whole Worked career has been in journalism news. right so that's just amazing yeah I mean Boca Raton News went there uh, that was my first job stayed there a year and a half and then uh at that time Book Return News was owned by Knight Ritter Corporation, which owned quite a few papers around the country. And one of the papers they owned was in Detroit, Detroit Free Press. So the Free Press was looking for a sports writer to cover three of their suburban bureaus. They need a sports writer for each one. So mm -hmm. I interviewed in Detroit for that job, got it, went to Detroit, uh, was there about two years covering high schools, and I wanted to move up, and I thought I was ready to move up. The sports editor there disagreed. So fortunately for me, he got a sabbatical, or a, a fellowship to Stanford. Okay. And left as sports editor, and we got a new sports editor. So the new sports editor comes in. He takes everybody separately to lunch in the department. When he takes me to lunch, he says, I like the way you write. I think you have a lot of potential. I think you should be doing more to cover high school. And I just figured he was telling that to everybody who was coming to high school. But as it turned out, he felt like I, I needed to grow. Oh, so wow. he just moved me downtown from the suburban bureaus. I stopped coming to high schools. I did everything, like general assignment. I did auto racing. One day I did baseball, whatever. And then finally the Pistons beat opened up, and I applied for it, and I got it. And then that was during the bad boy days with, you know, Isaiah yeah. and Rodman and Mahorn. So obviously that brought me a lot of attention. And then a gentleman I used to work with, Thomas George, he went to work for the New York Times. When they needed somebody to cover the Nets, he told them about me. And I ended up interviewing at the Times, and that's how I ended up. That's the shortest version I can tell you how I ended up at the New York Times. Wow. That's unbelievable. So the the art to writing, to sports writing, uh, I had a, <laughs> a two-week career in journalism I feel like <laughs> when I went to school and you know it didn't it didn't work out that way um but I know there's an art to it and a technique and obviously you kind of design and, and hone your skills but talk to me about the art of sports writing in general and how you kind of learned it and, and improved your game and your craft uh, throughout your career yeah, that's a great question I mean there's a lot to it as far as different ways first of all you know I think you have to be passionate about it and bring that passion to your writing. I mean, if you read something you write and you don't care about it, watch it anybody else. If you don't want to read it, watch it anybody else want to read it. So to me, you always have to bring that type of passion. Like, look, I'm going to write something that at least I think is half decent. I'm going to try my best to think that I like it, even if nobody else thinks it's anything. Secondly, you know, doing your research, doing your reading home. And now one thing I like about, you know, the age we're in now, you can find out so much information at your fingertips so when you go to interview somebody, there's no excuse for not knowing about, you know, their background, not doing your homework. And that leads you to asking better questions, which almost always leads to better responses. And then one, another thing is to read. Like if you read anything, if you like it, you should look at, first of all, who wrote it. Okay. Then you should say to yourself, why did I like that article? Why did I like that book? So whatever it was. What about their style was it that drew me in? Was it just what they were writing about? Or did they utilize, you know, certain words, the way they got into a scene or the way they described something that hooked you? So those are all things, even now, one thing, even getting older, unlike athletics, as long as your mind is working well, you can still grow 
as a writer almost to, to the day you die. It's not something where you have to depend on your physical skills to be good or to improve. As long as your mental skills and you are willing to put it in time, you can still be better. Wow. And so with that, so that's the, the foundation, right? Finding out that you're passionate, um, you know, looking and taking pieces of what other people that inspire you've done and see how you can incorporate that in your craft. How has that changed, right? Because you came, like you said, from paper days to now things are so digital. So how have you adapted or, or grown to kind of, you know, transform and um, making sure that you write holds people attention because people aren't writing, people aren't read. heck, people don't even read tweets now. That's only 150 some characters, right? So if you post something, you know, they don't read the whole thing. So how have you kind of adapted or, or grown through that, that kind of headache? Another great question. Uh, I've had to make a lot of um, changes and, you know, maybe not always successfully, and maybe not always uh, willingly at first. Uh, you know, the whole Twitter, communicating by Twitter, I was slow to really embrace that. Still don't the way most of my colleagues. I'm not on Twitter all the time. <laughs> Twitter's a great place for information. Sure, but to be sure. frank, I mean, there's so much hate on Twitter that to me it turns me off. So gotcha, yeah. I like to go to it for information, see what other people are saying, once in a while, I'll just, I won't be able to hold myself back and I have to weigh in on something. <laughs> but the whole back and forth with people you don't even know are like hiding behind their computers saying nasty things. I'm not into that at all. Twitter but, gangsters, boy. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> but as far as holding people's attention, yes, people still, when you do a podcast, when you write a story, when you're on television, if nobody's watching and listening, you become irrelevant. So... One thing I've always done, try to do, whether I'm speaking, writing, whatever, is get to the point and go try and hook them. What I try, try and hook them at the beginning. Like if you hook the fish, then you got a chance to catch the fish. And if you hook them at the beginning with your lead of a story, if you paint a picture where, wow, you know, like you, the first couple of graphs are like, okay, they want to read more. All of a sudden, maybe they get all the way to the end. And it's not like, wow, you know, I don't want to finish this. So you got to hook them. Don't beat around the bush. Say what you mean. Write what you mean. And again, write something in a way where you're trying to get get their attention at the beginning, and maybe you can keep them. The competitive nature I see kind of oozing through the, the purple hue of your, your, your shirt. Uh, you know, kind of how, how did you, you know, kind of compete against your competitors in, in growing through the process and in your career? Very good question. I mean, I worked in some really competitive. Ron Marcus, first Detroit was competitive. At the time I was there, the free press and the news, which two papers would still exist, but they've merged now. When I was there, they were fighting for survival, both of them. <laughs> so every any beat you cover, you, your job was to try and beat the person with the Detroit news. Uh, you know, your job may depend on it. The paper's future may depend on it. Then from there, I went to New York, and it was, yes. like, it was like, that's a whole singular animal unto its own. Oh, we're going we gonna to get into that. we definitely going to get into that. We got some. I was there, you know, Pat Riley era, you know, John Starks and Ewing. I mean, there'd be like nine beat writers, you know, Newark, Bergen County, The Post, The Times, The Daily News, News. Yes. I mean, every game, <laughs> every road trip. So... You were not going to break every story. <laughs> you were not going to win every game. Now, you weren't going 82 and up. Well, <laughs> it definitely holds your competitive skills. And so, you know, like at one time, myself, uh, a gentleman, Curtis Bond, who's now author, romance, he's done pretty well with the romance author uh, genre. He was covering the Knicks for Newsday. And Rob Parker, who works for Fox Sports, <laughs> yeah. We were all covering the beat at the same time. So it was three black sports writers covering the same team at a time where you rarely saw that. Hold on. And uh, Stephen A. was around there, too. I don't know where he was with. He came after us. Yeah, Stephen A. is a, a younger pup than us. Yeah, yeah see, like, I, I saw an old yeah. picture Rob threw up of that, man. So I was like, yo, those are some heavy – that's a heavy circle to roll around with, man. Right, y'all yeah. y'all were doing yeah. tough things. So like you said, it was, uh, it was you, Rob – um and Curtis, your, Bond, Curtis yeah. Bond, yeah, that's doing a lot, a yeah, lot of we the novels. All, yeah, we, we were all we were all covered in Nick, and yeah, we used to go at it, you know. <laughs> but 
we were we remain friends to this day. We, we all help each other get better. And yeah, I mean, it was just what we had to do. Yeah. But it, it, those were those as that's as competitive as it gets as a sports writer to me. Those days in New York. So you touched on it. Oh, go. You got a follow up, image? No, go ahead. Go so ahead. you kind of touched on it, right? So how was that coming out? As, and I'm talking about blacks in media, right? Um, on your podcast, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. But you talk about coming into doing an interview, and and when you're there at a, a football game, they're like, "Well, who's this black dude?" You know, covering the, the football game, and then you um, also just talking about that powerhouse of you know that crew you guys worked with. When I'm pretty sure that you guys had that competitive spirit, but you guys were all looking to lift each other up. So how was it coming through the ranks? You know, being a black in media, you know, where we were underrepresented. Yeah, I mean that's that is still the case uh, to this day. And, you know, I feel like I always felt an obligation to try and help that not be the case. You know, I always tried to give back to younger writers coming up, you know, try to approach them, introduce myself, you know, let them know that, you know, any, I was always available for them to for advice. And, yeah, as far as doing the job, I mean, there were different – it depends on the situation. My, I mentioned on the podcast, the first time I covered an NFL game, I was still working in Boca. We used to cover Dolphins home game. Uh-huh. And, yeah, I was so excited to cover my first NFL game. Absolutely. And I got to the press box. And, yeah, when I walked in, it was at the Orange Bowl. I mean, I would say there were, like, 80 writers there. And, like, there were no other black writers there. I hadn't even thought about, I hadn't even thought about that, honestly, before it happened, like I was just so excited to be the game. I guess if you would ask me how many other black writers you think will be there, I would have probably said, oh, not many. <laughs> right. I wasn't even. I was just excited. I wasn't thinking. Of, I'm a. I'm a pie. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a pioneer. And I wasn't thinking about any of that. But when I got in that press room, mm-hmm. I felt the eyes looking at me, and I'm like, I know why. It's not just because they haven't seen me before. It's because I look the way I do. And so, yeah, that was a moment. Where I'm like, you know what, uh, you have you're not just doing this for yourself because, unfortunately, to me, yeah, if if I mess up in that situation, it's not just going to be okay. Cliff Brown messed up, and then the next brother or sister is going to get an opportunity. It to, somehow it reflects on them too, sure. and then some people are hesitant to give the next brother or sister opportunity because the last brother or sister who had the opportunity didn't do the job absolutely that's deep well you are a pioneer and you know and thank you again for for joining us man i'm learning so much i feel like i can talk to you for hours um 1990 to 1994 knicks beat writer those were some of the heydays of the knicks so how you, you touched on how it was but 1993 game two eastern conference finals i guess they call it the dunk John Starks. How was just covering that, covering Jordan and the, the three P Bulls, the first three P Bulls? How 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 was that atmosphere? It was the best. I mean, I, I was blessed, you know, to, to be there and see it. I mean, yeah, Jordan. Uh, well, first I was in Detroit. Yeah, Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so first, yeah. Was, I was covering the bad boys going against Jordan. <laughs> then I moved to New York, and then the Knicks become a major rival of the Bulls. So. I got a lot of Jordan. You got a lot of it. Um, <laughs> a lot of it. And yeah, I mean, Michael, he um he was very good with the media. I mean, he he actually liked talking to writers from other cities. Sometimes he would pump you for information. Really? Um, he was trying to find out, you know, what was going on with the team. Yeah. So he was he was available before games, just sitting there in front of his locker. Um, would talk to people, especially faces he recognized. But that atmosphere there with the Knicks, it was just great. I mean, when Pat Riley became their coach, I just knew. I knew enough about from watching with the with the Lakers, you know, the Pistons lost to them in seven one year and then beat them the next year. I mean, Riley, uh, one of the most demanding coaches I've ever been around, I just knew when he came to New York, I just felt he would win. I just felt like awesome. he would demand. They had enough talent where he would demand, and a center like Patrick Ewing, they would win. And that's exactly what happened. So, yeah, they weren't they weren't afraid of the Bulls. They just they couldn't get over the hump, but they would push Michael and his crew to the limit. And yeah, watching those games was unbelievable. 
So we heard stories about Jordan in the last dance, getting motivation from all kinds of places. Did you, did you give him any motivation uh, for some of the 50 point games? <laughs> I'm gonna tell, this is, this is, this is a true story. Um, I did, a, I had to do a story on Michael when he came back out of retirement the first time he had won the three titles. Yeah. Went to play baseball, baseball. then okay. decided that he was coming back to the NBA. So I'm working in the New York Times. He's coming back to the NBA. It was the summer when they shot Space Jam. <laughs> that was the summer he was working to come, to come back. He came back actually before that. They lost to Orlando. A lot of people don't remember that. He yeah. came back like real late. Maybe came back for the playoffs. I remember they lost to Orlando, but then he spent that whole summer working out, doing Space Jam. So I go to Chicago to this preseason game. Actually, to a Bulls practice. He sees me, but he's leaving. I guess they forgot to tell him, you know, I was coming in instead of an interview. So he's like, man, I can't talk to you today. If you come to the exhibition game tomorrow in Quad Cities, Iowa, which I think is like a three or four-hour drive to Chicago, mm-hmm. I'll talk to you before the game. So, you know, I called the paper and said, yo, I got to go to Quad City. I make the drive. So <laughs> the next day, before this exhibition game, he talks to me. He gives me this great interview about – you know, they set up this ball wall out in California yeah. when they were filming Space Jam and all these players came out to play pickup games and how, you know, he really got his game together and he's down to like 218 was his exact weight he wanted to be. <laughs> when I'm leaving, so I'm like, thanks, Mike, Mike, for your time. I mean, I'm walking away from the interview's over. He's like, yo. I'm like, yeah. He's like, yo, he says, when you get back to New York, you tell Patrick he should have won a championship wow. when I was there. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> Let's go. He was dead serious. Holy crap. Like to myself, like this dude, man. Yeah, it's, I had a feeling right then, yep. And then I went in the next three times in a row. He's okay. He's like, you tell Patrick, yeah, he should have won his championship when I was born. So, real quick, speaking (laughs) on that, that, that's, that's hilarious. But there's another story, I guess, that happened that for me was like the first time where sports, and pop culture and politics all mixed. And that was kind of the OJ Simpson trial. And I know that happened right during, you know, the, the, I think the Broncos chase was literally right during the NBA finals game against you are uh, correct. Knicks against the Rockets. Yeah. 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 So yeah. tell us about reliving that moment. That was crazy. Man. Like, <laughs> to say the least. The shortest way I can say it is, okay, the Broncos chase starts. Um, at the times, all the times off is only like, 10-block walk to Madison Square Garden. So I don't remember exactly, but by the time I'm in the office getting ready to walk down to the garden for the game, the Bronco chase has started. <laughs> so then I get I walk down to the arena. I got to go, you know, the game, walk down to the arena. Before the game, you know, I remember I saw Ahmad Rashad, Bob Lanier, uh-huh. and I can't – somebody else, I can't remember the – they all knew OJ. I mean, wow. like they knew him. Yeah, there's over there at those back like, backyard barbecues he used to have, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they're all like, you know, destroyed us, but they're like, yeah, this is like terrible for them. I mean, this is scat they know. Yeah. And yeah, then the game starts, and it's still going on. So there are people with radios and little TVs behind us on press row giving us updates. On what's happening with the team? Why the game's going he's on? going on. Game? Yeah, he's parked now outside. You know they're not. I'm like, this is crazy. This is crazy. <laughs> it was. It was like the weirdest night. So I actually didn't. Unlike a lot of people who were watching it, I guess people were flipping back and forth between the yeah. two. I'm at the game. You know, I'm covering the game. But yeah, we're getting updates behind. It was crazy. It was crazy. Wow. No, that's that's insane. And it was funny. I was looking at that, too, because I was like, you know, going back and I was like, yeah, he probably should have won because that was the time they made it to the finals. And then they yeah. lost it. Then they lost to Houston. So for you to tell that story, that that uh, had to be painful for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another, yeah. I mean, Derek Harper, another guy I love, you know, yeah. Knicks brought him in. Oh, yeah. He was their point guard when they lost to Houston in seven. Houston, well, first Knicks got up three, two and then mm-hmm. lost game six. So game set, Harper, I talked to Derek about three or four years ago. He told me this story. Wherever they were staying, the Knicks, it was like right by the summit, the arena. So Derek walked, just like before game seven. You know, he's nervous. He's waiting all day. He decided he was going to walk to the arena. Heck, with riding the bus. Okay. When he gets to the arena, he sees all the champagne going to, like, both locker rooms because somebody's going to win. 
Correct. And so he just realized, like he said, like that's a visual I kind of like didn't want to see because you know you're not trying to. He, but it's like all this champagne, like truckloads full going in. And then he remembers after the game when they lost, sitting in the locker room, no champagne. <laughs> like he's he's drinking a beer. Hubert, Hubert Davis, who just became the Knicks coach, yeah. or, or Carolina's coach. Sorry, Hubert yeah. is cry- he says Hubert is crying next to me, like in the lot, like crying to the point where I can't really listen to it anymore. And I'm drinking this beer, thinking about. <laughs> Houston drinking all that all champagne. that champagne I saw. God, I know right. they got it. <laughs> right, and so he said he went in the shower to get away from Huber and all. And he said Riley had to come get him. Like he didn't realize how long he'd been in there. <laughs> the whole team had left the locker room. Dirk was still in the shower. Wow. And he said Riley came and like said Dirk, you know, we got to go. And he said Riley waited for him to get dressed, and then they walked out the locker room together. Damn. Wow. I'll never forget that. Wow. <laughs> That's a great story, man. So amazing times, man. So want to fast forward, man, and what we call this is uh in the game or in your career. So fast forward to, you know, uh the Baltimore beat, man. So how did you get on uh Baltimore and and what's like really uh, some of the da- uh, tasks and duties you do for um as a, a writer for the Baltimore Ravens? Yeah, uh, well, I'm a staff writer with their website. Um, you know, I write stories obviously about the team. Uh, work for the Ravens. We do podcasts, videos, uh, articles, whatever. Uh, Ravens fans are great. Baltimore loves the Ravens. They can't get enough. You know, it's been a highly successful organization. Two Super Bowls for organization to start in 1996. Ozzie Newsom, you know, great general manager. Amazing. Uh, so, yeah, how I got with the Fizz, I worked for uh, Comcast. Well, they called NBC Sports Washington, but the times when it was Comcast Baltimore. Okay. I was doing mostly writing for the website, but also did TV, loved the job. I was the Ravens insider. Okay. So I was covering the Ravens for four years from like 13 till 17. But Comcast lost the TV contract with the Ravens. Oh, so that's so, why it's two stints. It looked like that you were with Baltimore and then you went somewhere and then you came back. Okay. Got right. you. Okay. My first thing, yeah, I wasn't working for the Ravens. I was covering, covering them. Got you. Okay. Yes. So then my job disappeared. <laughs> okay. I still got to eat. So I went to Indianapolis. I got a job in Indianapolis working in the sports department, Indianapolis Star newspaper. And then after I left and had been there for a year and a half, the Ravens called me and asked me that I want to come back and work for them. And, you know, I'd never worked for a team before. Um, I've been a sports writer all my life covering teams. And, yeah, I had to think long and hard about whether I wanted to make that type of transition. But I had a lot of respect for the Ravens organization. I noticed that when I covered them, people didn't leave. Like, wow. Like, almost everybody in the organization, to me, seems like they've been there. Like, if you've been there 10 years, you're, like, new. <laughs> so I'm like, they can't be treating people that badly if everyone's staying this long. I mean, these are talented people. They could get a job elsewhere if they wanted to. Why are they staying? So they must be treating people right. And then I got to know a lot of people in the organization, and I just figured that at this stage of my career, with the newspaper business being so volatile, it should be at least something I should give a shot. And I've really enjoyed it. I mean, I've enjoyed the three years I've uh, been there. And, um, yeah. That's amazing. Um, um, Yeah, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) So anytime I hear the Baltimore Ravens, I feel like I got to tighten a chin strap tighter. Uh, pull up my socks a little, you know, it's, it's third and one, that that type of, I, I guess, uh, demeanor, I guess culture, it seems like, at least on the field. So I guess tell us a little about, I, I can feel what it is on the field, but a little bit off the field, uh, just the culture of the organization. I, I'm, I'm a fan of Ozzie Newsom, as you mentioned, uh, but just, just the whole entire culture, as much as you can tell. Yeah, I mean, I think the culture is, you know, excellence, you know, uh, Strive, strive for perfection, strive for excellence. I think it's also a culture of um, stability, a belief in how they do things. I mean, um, Ozzie Newsom was a general manager for, you know, over 20 years. Now Eric DaCosta mm-hmm. is a general manager, has been for a few years doing a great job. But Ozzie's still there in the building. Um, awesome, it's like Ozzie mentored Eric. Now Eric has his job, but... If Eric wants to ask Ozzy a question, he's right there. 
uh, Steve Bashotti, the owner. To me, that's a great vision of having people, letting them do their job. John Harbaugh's been the head coach for 13 years. That, you yeah. don't see in the NFL much. Right. Um, they've been able to establish a culture there, and then they've been fortunate to have, you know, great players. You talk about the shit, you know, Ray Lewis and Ed Reed, two iconic players on defense. Hall of Famers. Yes, yes. Yeah, Jonathan Ogden, another – you know, Ozzy's first two draft picks were John DeOzzi and Ray Lewis. I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> really right. right. That's how you start off, right? <laughs> and then in his last draft, he drafts Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson. Yes. So he drops he drops the mic at the beginning and the end. <laughs> so when you do that, yeah, and then you have the type of stability they have that sets the tone for a long run a success, which is really what they have. I mean, the Ravens, they're kind of one of those teams that's like always in the hunt. So, yeah, I think they do it the right way. Yeah, as a Steelers fan, I, I don't appreciate it, but I, I do have <laughs> I have respect. That's another, but that's another great organization, too. I mean, you could say the same things about them. And that's another thing to me that makes – whether which side you're on, I mean, the Steelers and Ravens have been bumping heads for a long, for a long time. <laughs> it's because most years they're in each other's way. Yes, <laughs> facts, right? Like it's who who's going to represent and, and take it all the way, right? To to, to go on. So no, right? Um, well, Cleveland might have something to say about this. Oh shit. yeah. <laughs> oh, here we go. Uh, yeah, they might. Cleveland felt they won the Super Bowl when they knocked us off, man. Like, I can't. That's the only, like, I, and I'm happy for them because, like, I tell people I think we do have the toughest division. And, you know, I think Cincinnati's going to pull around once they get, you know, some protection for Burrow, man. So, it's, it's we, we got to, we beat each other up <laughs> getting out of our division. You guys, you guys must have a lot of fun, man, for a Cleveland thing. That, that's funny. Oh, it's. Oh, and the Cleveland fans are getting worse. Uh, people talk about the anyway. I'm not even gonna get into that. It's about you. <laughs> back up, the, <laughs> back back to the Ravens. So, um, you know, so part of your duties, you you mentioned the podcast, man. So you have the podcast Black in the NFL, man. So what was the genesis of that? How did that come about? Um, I'm, it's just it's an amazing and it's needed. So how did that come around? Well, basically, uh, last year, you know, we all know some of the stuff that happened. Uh, in this country, some of the tragedies, unfortunately, people losing their lives. But even before the George Floyd in- incident, I was speaking with, you know, some people, the Ravens, who I work with about, you know, me kind of wanting to do this type of podcast that they were just, you know, I was having a conversation with players uh-huh. and they were talking about the things going on that we all were in this country, you know, that, you know, the frustration, the feeling that, you know, we needed a change. Uh, the injustices, you know, whether it was police brutality, economics. So, yeah, I wanted to bring some of these conversations that I was having with players that didn't really fit into the stories that I'm writing to give them a voice and then get someone to myself a little bit of my voice into a forum where just to make people think. I mean, race is a subject that, to me, still most people – a lot of people are really reluctant to talk about honestly. That's um, and there's a there's a real need for it. I mean, if you're going to get past, if we're going to get past some of the stereotypes with you know racism and sexism that we've had to deal with uh, since the inception of this country. We need to talk about them honestly. So that was really the again. I mentioned you know something being passionate about something. I knew like you know it wasn't going to be for everybody. Uh, I've already talked about, you know, not really wanting to deal with some of the hate, hate, hate or heat on Twitter. Right. And I knew that doing a podcast like this was going to invite some, you know, not some pleasant comments from some people. Hmm. But I just feel like we all have a duty to try and make things better in whatever way you can. And so nice. since I am a sports writer and I have access to athletes and other people, and this is something that I feel like I can do a little bit as far as, you know, express myself and, and encourage others to express themselves. I decided I was going to go for it and let the chips fall where, where they may. That's amazing, man. And it's needed. And I mean, so we definitely feel that <laughs> me and MH hundred um, percent because we felt some of those, those things as well. Um, you know, more, you know, from a business side, like uh, what we see as we're going up the ranks and then like you as well as a sports writer, sharing some of those same sentiments that are just, you know, same challenges, just a different vertical. Yeah, 
any any aspect of life, man. Any aspect of life. Um, it's amazing. And now, you know, when you do what you guys do, podcast, and put yourself out there, it's funny. People will tell you things that blow you away. You know, I had a conversation with a guy I went to high school with. His father was a uh, bus driver, uh-huh. rode for a private drove for a private bus company outside of Philly and to cut to the chase, they had about 35 drivers for his company and about two or three black guys. It, for about eight years, he wondered like why a lot of these guys had like homes in uh, Atlantic city, which is about uh, Albert Philly. You know, they had like vacation homes, right. bars. He knew they were making more money. Turns out the the, comp- the president of the bus company was paying the mortgage, buying them houses if you worked there. They never had to even buy a house. Like, that was part of the deal, working because he wanted that loyalty. Mm-hmm. He didn't want you to leave to go work for the you know, Philly bus company. So, But he didn't do that for the black drivers. And the three black drivers never knew that for like 10 years. They were working for this company. They never knew that everybody else was getting a house and they weren't. So... Just like stories like that, the house that he grew up in, my friend grew up in, it was we grew up in a neighborhood where whites were moving out to get away from us because we were moving in. When it first started happening, they weren't listing these houses. They weren't putting for sale signs out because they didn't want black people moving in. Correct. They were doing all these like private, you know, sales behind the scenes, never putting a sign out. But his father found out that this house was for sale. That he ended up growing up with because. He drove this lady home through the neighborhood on his bus, took her door to door, and finally, like, it's built up, well, you know, I'm getting ready to sell my house. You might be interested. So it was was an accident. Wow. I mean, yeah, just stuff like, we don't even, like, it's so ingrained. Some of this racism stuff is so ingrained. I don't think even sometimes I don't even realize, like, some of the things I've had to that have affected me. I'm not going to say I'm overcome that they stuff you don't even think about teachers, the way they perceived you, where you grew up, yeah, what jobs you were offered or not, what you knew, what you didn't know. Race plays a big part. In it. it always does. It's just, it just does. Man, <laughs> it, it certainly does. We often hear about um, things. We learn about athletes, through print journalism, through 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 sports media, um, but do you ever learn something from athletes in your conversation? Just life wise, what are some things that you've learned from athletes? Yeah, all the time, man, all the time. And I mean, people. I guess this is like a common theme I have. These guys are the when you talk about professional athletes, they're the best of the best. Yes, they're oh the yeah, best in the world at what they do. You know, the third string quarterback is one of the best quarterbacks in the world. <laughs> and they've all had to overcome a lot of things to get this far. And yes, yeah, so they're blessed. A lot of them are blessed with, you know, physical skills, but it's more than that. You know, it's the mental, it's the mental side and keeping that together, being strong, overcoming disappointment. You know, sports, I love. One thing I do love about sports, not only the competition, the finality of it. I mean, everybody today talks trash. You know, I can do this, I can do that. Once the game starts, somebody's going to win. Scoreboard. (laughs) Scoreboard. You might say, oh, the ref's job, this, or whatever, whatever. You lost. There it is. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Like, we played, you lost, that's it. It doesn't matter what you said. So, Yeah. I'm inspired by like I hope I I try and have respect for the people I interview because they have really excelled at what they do. It's not easy to do what they do. You know, guys sit around with beers and all that. Yeah, I could do that. No, you could not. Cannot. You know, you could. You think you might really believe that you could, but you you went on that field for five minutes. You wouldn't want anymore. There it is. <laughs> yeah, I try and bring that respect to to coaches, to players. You don't have to ask them tough questions, but I try and give them respect. And to me, if you do, you will get better answers from them if they sense that from you. Not sure. Now, really then, quick. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, EJ. 
I was going to jump into quick hits, so if you want to ask a question, hit them now. Yeah, yeah, just just kind of following that. The nature of sports is, I'm sure in your career, you've seen a lot of athletes and a lot of coaches. How do you, uh, I guess, I guess keep from from making uh, you know athlete just another jersey number or a coach just another coach, and, and separating the, the the profession obviously from real people, right? Well. For me, it's like they're all people. They're all unique. Yes. I mean, I believe in God, and one reason why I do is no two people are alike. Mm-hmm. None. I mean, think about the billions of people, even like identical twins, are not <laughs> are not alike. Right. There's something about them that's different. I mean, how can that even be? How is that even possible that there's no two people you'll meet that are exactly alike? So. I try and remember that this isn't just a person I'm watching play get to desensitize that this is a human being. Right. Um, yeah, when you watch, especially in football, I mean, the injuries you see, you know, the, the nature of the game, these guys are putting their bodies at risk every day in practice, every Sunday. So mm-hmm. it's a human being. You shouldn't forget that. You know, the mm-hmm. emotion to go with sports the spontaneity of it, and then everybody's watching. Like, their office is in front of everybody. So when they lose their temper, everybody sees everybody it. Sees. You right. know, when they cuss, you know, do something they shouldn't do, they're in the spotlight. They're under the microscope. So that, to me, if you don't – if you can remember this is just a person like you who's putting on his uniform and going out there, but it's a person. That's a person behind that number 24. A human being, yes. Then that helps you a lot. Not to take take every game, or just another game. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, MH. So, so we can stay on track, man. Uh, hit them with the quick hits. Because then maybe your your biggest hero or industry or uh, inspiration in the industry. Wow. Yeah, just a quick name. Who, who do you got? Chuck, uh, Chuck Stone, probably guy you never heard. He was a he was a columnist a long time in Philadelphia, black columnist, uh, really influential. Like guys used to turn themselves in to the police through Chuck Stone, like, because they trusted him that much to protect themselves from police brutality. He would be my guy. Uh, One guy I admire who you guys would know is Mike Wilbon. I think he's been a trailblazer and done it in a classy way. He's always been one of my favorites. That's awesome. If you had to choose another profession, what would it be? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, assuming I wasn't good enough to be an athlete, I probably would want to be a coach, like a high school coach. I love youth. Uh, I love, yeah, kids. And, yeah, I probably would want to go into coaching. Don't seem like a complainer, but biggest complaint you have about the job or your career? Mm, I'm not a complainer, but biggest complaint? Well, I never got to be a columnist where I could just swing from the hip on, you know, stuff that I want to say. Your topics I mean, and your I'm stuff. I'm a quiet person, and uh, I think sometimes people are surprised at some of the things I say, at least by the looks on their faces. They don't expect that to come from me. And I really would have loved to have been a columnist in a major city where I could have given more of my opinions on a lot of things going on in sports. Player or coach in your career who genuinely made you laugh, like a, a like an actual funny player or coach? Well, Barkley is uh, funny. Uh, <laughs> he would make me laugh a lot. Uh, I never covered him like on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. John Sally's a funny guy in Detroit. <laughs> yeah, he would make me laugh. Uh, coaches, I know coaches coming to mind, man. Coaches are like, man, that's a different animal. <laughs> They're under so much pressure. Right. I mean, yeah, it's no coach. It's funny. No coach is popping in my head right now. Something you've accomplished a lot of things, but something that you haven't accomplished that you want to. Mm. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think that I would like to, I don't know. I always wanted to like climb a mountain, like, yeah. not like a little hill. Like, <laughs> It just seemed like it would be so cool to like just be standing on top. You know, I've never done it. It'd probably be dangerous for me to do it now. I did go <laughs> to the Grand Canyon this summer, though, for the first time. That was a bucket list trip because 
just the way seeing the pictures wasn't enough for me. So yeah, I did pose like I climbed the Grand Canyon. <laughs> there you go. I did not. <laughs> I did not. And if uh, we were putting together an all basketball team, a starting five from the teams that you have covered, Oof. who would that be? Well, Who's cracking the line up? Yeah, we're just talking now Detroit, Nets, Knicks, and I covered daily. So, I mean, Isaiah was the first person popped in my head. I mean, Isaiah Dumars might be my backcourt. I'm sure Patrick would be my center. And then forwards, man, we're talking, you know, Ryman I got to choose from. Oh, you know, guys like Oakley. Uh, Ryman would be there for sure. And I guess I'm looking for a power forward now. Uh, I'd probably go with Charles Oakley. I'd probably go with Charles Oakley. That's a strong But, you know, I think my favorite basketball player of all time is Magic Johnson. Um, uh-huh. I just love the flair he played with the – but doing it in a way to win. And I just love the way that everyone loved playing with Magic. I don't think there's a teammate that ever played with Magic who was like, ah. Magic type guy, like if you were, yeah, if you were in a bad spot, you would want Magic to be with you. Like if Magic was on a Titanic, you'd be like, we getting off this boat, man. Everything going to be cool. He just just makes you feel that way. And yeah, there's just a joy he played with. I just loved watching him play. Nice. So I have a quick hit too, man. So really quick. Um, the Ravens are coming to Monday night football here in Las Vegas uh, to open up the season. Uh, it's going to be a really big game. And it's uh, for us, it's a, you know, it's going to, well, not for us, for Ronnie Stanley, it's going to be a homecoming. So, you know, he's a Vegas local, played at Gorman. Uh, really good dude. So it's going to be awesome to, to see him come back. So my quick hick is, did you ever think that you would see NFL in Vegas? No. <laughs> Not in my lifetime. Right. Now, if you, told, if you told me it was going to happen one day, I'd have been like, yeah, okay. Like, maybe, right? But <laughs> Right. But not with the speed that it happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, hey, man. That talks. And the other stuff walks. <laughs> exactly, man. Exactly. All right, Always man. Always follow the money. Always follow the money. All right, so let's jump into the winner's circle, man. This is the platform, and this is, you know, really one of the things that we pride and really excited about our show. And, you know, we're going to reach out to you and just said, you know, what did you want to promote, what you want to talk about? And you just say that you're really a big supporter and proponent of uh, Alzheimer's uh, Association for, you know, national, local, just any way you can support, man. And you shared with us, but I want you to kind of share um, how that became so uh, a passion for you and, uh, you know, what are some ways that people that are listening can support and get involved? Yeah, I mean, you know, both my parents passed away at all times. Condolences. I mean, being the first black uh, woman to graduate from Temple University of Pharmacy. My father was a social worker, both really brilliant people. And, you know, to watch their final years and lose memories, lose thoughts, it was just painful to me. And I never thought about it until it happened to them. And then now, you know, so many people are dealing with, you know, parents or brothers and sisters who are going down that route because we're living longer, but it seems like our brain sometimes can't last as long as we live. So yeah, I would just encourage anyone to, um, you know, if they have a local chapter of national also I'm association, your local chapter, there's plenty of walks almost in every community to raise money. And I think that that's the type of disease, you know, like a cancer where, you know, almost everyone's going to be affected by it if you haven't been already. So to see both of my parents, you know, go down that road is something that, you know, I'll never forget. So that's why Alzheimer's uh, a cure or certainly more and more processes to slow down that disease to me is, is near and dear to my heart. How do we educate ourselves with the disease? Um, I know a lot of people kind of just aware of it, but not really deep diving into the education parts of it. So how, how do we educate ourselves into it? Yeah, there's a lot of information out there, you know, I mean, that you can Google at your fingertips. So yeah, you know, you call Alzheimer's Association and I'm sure they, they would uh, put you in touch with the best, you know, reading and research material to learn more about it. And also as I mentioned too, like for the caregivers of people going through that, how, how, you know, heartbreaking that is for 
people who are caring for someone suffering from that disease, um, they need support too. So yeah, again, it's just one of like any disease, but it's just one of it's a really emotional uh, disease to watch someone who you've known them a certain way your whole life, and then you know at the end, yeah, they're they're robbed of memories, and, and you you are robbed of, of spending time with them because they kind of disappear into this you know blank space little by little. So the information is out there. Uh, again, I just hope that you know medically we can keep making advances to where, you know, people can deal with the disease better and have, you know, more quality years at the end of their life. So is there any links or have there been talked? You know, I know there's a lot of uh, player safety things happening in the NFL. You know, have there been any links or talks from the NFL or do you see anything from the NFL supporting that, right? Because it seems like, you know, the uh, October is really big breast cancer, right? Or just cancer awareness, you know, in, in general. Um, but have you seen anything or is it really specific, like local and, and maybe by team by team? Yeah, I don't know of any like, you know, national NFL program, but I could be wrong. And yeah, I just think that you will see more and more players in all sports get involved with it. Because again, I just think it's going to be something that affects uh, more and more people including, you know, athletes and their families on a regular basis. But, they, you know, I think that this is important that, you know, you mentioned about the league and athletes, what they're doing. I mean, when you're given a platform, you know, think of how you can give back. It doesn't have to be anything grandiose or something that, you know, takes on, you know, where everybody knows about. It can just be, you know, your your little space, the people in your life. I remember Magic Johnson saying something like, if everybody just took care of their neighborhood, like wherever you, everybody comes from somewhere. Right. So if you got to be made as the NBA or NFL, and you just went back to your neighborhood where everybody knows you. Right. And try to do what you could for that community. Think about if every player did that. Just that. You don't have to go national, you be on commercial, not just, hey, you know, I'm going to build a library, I'm going to donate computers to school, you know, I'm whatever. Just where you grew up. That'd be big. I mean, it a huge difference. So, um, definitely, and if there's anything else you want to, to pick on, but I definitely want to give you, because that was your platform, but one of the, the, a couple things I wanted to touch on, really, first of all, I want to touch on, you're an author, you know, we said that in the intro, mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I'll let you speak on it, but Irving Cross, you helped r- uh, write a book with, which is, um, I'm looking forward. I- I'm actually, that's on my book list. I, <laughs> I, my summer reading was a little slow this year, so I'm going to have to pick back up, but, um, just talk about us, um, it's bearing the cross that you co-authored with him and just tell me what that meant to you and, um, you know, rest in heaven. Um, you know, you just, I think recently lost him, uh, this year, but, uh, s- please speak on ago, that. Yeah. Yeah. Her passed away a few months ago, uh, Played Philadelphia Eagles, but most people know him from his work for the NFL Today Show, which is still, you know, on mm-hmm. a much different version. But you know, Irv was the first black national sports analyst. So before the Stephen A. Smith, you know, and the Tom Jackson, and so on and on, he was he was the trailblazer for all that. So he wanted to write a book, which I didn't know till I met him. Uh, but had never gotten around to it. And I remember Eric, you know, he played for the Eagles growing up in Philly, watching NFL Today. I was just looking to do a book project. I just said, you know what? I've never written a book. I kind of would like to write one one day. So I contacted the publisher, sent him some book ideas. Uh-huh. And the idea on Herb was his favorite. He's like, oh, I loved Herb. I think a lot of people would really, uh, you know, relate to this. So I tracked Herb down. We met in a hotel room in Philly, and we kicked it for a couple of hours, and we just hit it off. Nice. And he's like, you know what? I, I'm going to do this with you. And it was really a pleasure to get to know him as a person, great person. Um, yeah, really one of the most faithful people. I mean, he was one. I didn't know so many things about him. Either, but I mean, he was one of 15 kids. Oh, um, grew up really poor. Lost his mom when he was 10. Uh, was the first person in his family to go to college, went to Northwestern. He and Brett Musburger were at Northwestern together. Didn't know that they would end up working together on a TV show years later. He just had a fascinating life story. And, yeah, that's how I got to write the book. It was just kind of seemed like it was something that our paths crossed and it was kind of meant to be. 
And I would like to do other books, but to me, a book is a labor. It has to be a labor of love, at least for me. Uh-huh. If it's not going to be something I'm passionate about, I just don't want to do it. So I'm kind of looking for that next, the urge, the right subject, the right time. You know, maybe, maybe it's coming. You know, maybe it's coming. I'm so, always kicking it around, trying to see if there's another book project I want to do. I like it. And then you also talked about giving back. And, you know, I do want to make sure we talk about um, the NABJ. All right. Is it that the right mm-hmm. acronym? So the National, National Association of Black Journalists. Yes, absolutely. Sir. So that's a part of the giving back, right? Like you talk about these athletes and, and you know, you've been a pioneer in things that you do. And you speak about, like, you personally um, let people know that you're involved. But um, talk about that and shed a little light on that. Yeah, National Association of Black Journalists always recommended uh, young people wanting to get into the profession they should join. Um, you know, when I was coming up in the business, there weren't many of us doing it. NABJ, you know, was formed by some guys before me and sisters before me uh, to try and help so we could help each other have opportunities and create opportunities, you know, for, for the younger generations coming up. And that's exactly what the organization has done. Um, NABJ even now is a watchdog for a lot of media companies. I mean, you know, when people working at a CBS or uh-huh. ESPN or whatever, we feel like they're not being treated right. Yeah. We, we bring it to the attention of the masses and try and help things get right. So, at you. <laughs> yeah, NABJ is important for job opportunities. It's important for support as a support group for all of us, where a lot of us sharing similar experiences can converse and talk. So yeah, I've been a long time member of NABJ there are plenty of other journalists who've done way more in the organization than I have, but I've always been a supporter of an ABJ because I just feel that that's a tool, a vehicle that we all need. And it's, and in my career, it's definitely been helpful for them to me. I found out about jobs, not just for myself, but for others where they went and chased opportunities and were able to get jobs. And yeah, just the support that we can give each other, I think is vitally important. That's beautiful. So since you're still on that, right. This is a part of the show we like to call the assists, all right? So this is where you give a coaching gym or a, a life philosophy or just words that, to live by that you can share with our audience, man. So uh, give, us, give, us that, uh, give us that coaching gym. Wow. Uh, the first thing that popped in my mind was my dad. We went to a uh, track meet. I was a kid. And so we watched this race. And for some reason, he liked this one guy. And at the end, um, you know, this guy passed the guy he was rooting for. And so dad was like, man, I just thought he was mad because the guy lost. Dad's like, man, he said, you know, it looked to me like he quit. Mm. He said, son, he said, I'm going to tell you something. Whatever you do, don't quit. He said, if you lose, things don't go your way. He said, always be proud that you gave it your best. He said, but if you ever start something, finish it and don't quit. Let's go. I like have never forgotten that. I just never forgotten it. So don't quit. I think that applies in almost anything. If you really want to do something, don't quit. I mean, now, like I said, all the, all the hate you get on Twitter, people always got something to say. There's always going to be people telling you what you can't do. That's never going to stop. Uh-huh. Don't buy into it. Absolutely. Don't buy into it. If you believe in your, you got to believe in yourself. Go. There will be people who believe in you. But you have to believe in yourself. You can't, to me, how are you going to make it if you don't believe in yourself? Super facts. Super facts. MH, last words. Mr. Brown, man, really appreciate your time uh, today. And I think a lot of times in our generation, we have access to a lot of information, but we don't sit down and listen to those all the time that have already done it, that have experienced it all. Uh, So we really appreciate your time. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for joining us, but thank you for all the work that you've done and, and paving the way uh, for those that look like us as well growing up. So thank you very much. Thank you too. I mean, uh, I loved it. Enjoy meeting you guys and getting to know you. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. I mean, you guys are the future, man. I, I love it. I just love seeing young journalists, young broadcasters, young professionals doing their thing. And the world is changing. It's your time now. Do your thing, man. 
Well, it's, it's folks like you that paved the way, man. So we're blessed to have yes, you, man. Sir. So, hey, uh, wrapping it up, man, we just want to thank our guests again, man. You've blessed us and graced us with some uh, with some great stuff. We want to thank you, the people, for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. New shows dropping every Thursday, so please subscribe to the podcast because visual representation matters. So that's why we're here in front of you. Uh, but, hey, you can also subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So remember, please, please stay safe, practice gratitude, and know we're rooting for you. Screaming, all us blacks got a sports and entertainment until we even. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Yeah. 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 Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Spat about two racks on handmade new rags. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. That's everybody from sports to college class to rap and back.